0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
2: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber.
3: And I'm Eric Balchunas.
2: Eric, we're halfway through the year and it's time for a... Halftime report. There you go. You're a little little slow there. A little slow there. You know what we're doing today? Okay. Halftime report. Podcast. And and we brought some
3: people to join. One of them is a regular. Todd. Todd Rosenbluth, who uh, if people... Anyone listening who's in the ETF industry knows this guy very well and knows some of uh, his great work both for CFRA and on Twitter, which uh, he uh, he's is... becoming like a recurring character. I like it, right? And, and here he is again. Yeah, he's kind of like Tom Hanks on Family Ties. You know how he came in once in a while as the... <laughs> yes,
2: that is exactly who he is. Pretty
3: good reference, right? Yeah. We also have another character who is also a frequent guest. Sarah yes, Ponzak. Sarah Ponzak from Bloomberg News. Also has a
2: podcast of her own now. I do. Co-hosting a podcast.
4: It's called What Goes Up? Shameless plug.
2: So what we want to do <laughs> is talk to Todd and Sarah about... A couple observations from the first half of the year and maybe even a couple, I don't know, crystal ball style predictions. Because we can
4: all tell the future. Exactly.
2: This week on Trillions, 2019 Halftime Report. Todd, Sarah, thanks for joining on Trillions. Observation number one, big observation. Who wants it?
5: Yeah, I'll start. Uh, so this has really been the year of fixed income ETFs. More than half of the net inflows have gone into fixed income ETFs this year. It's about 20% of the overall ETF pie. But what's quite compelling to us at CFRA is a couple of things. One is the range of products that have, that have gained interest. You've got high yield. You've got long term treasuries like TLT and IEF. You've got the ultra short products uh, that were popular in 2018 have stayed popular. Uh, Bill SHV, a- along with the active ones like Mint and JPST, and then the second part of this is again the range of products. So, using Bloomberg data earlier this week, I saw you know more than a hundred fixed income ETFs have gathered over a hundred million dollars of net new money this year. So it's not just the big boys that are gathering assets, but we're seeing a range of products, both large and small, that are popular. And that's a great sign for ETF adoption.
2: Why? What's happening?
5: Well, you've got a couple of things happening. Many investors are expecting the Fed to not only have paused but actually cut interest rates. We at CFRA don't think that's going to be happening as aggressively as the broader market does. But so you have investors that are willing to take on risk in order to get the yield. Uh, we've seen credit default risk be relatively low. And then you've got folks that don't believe that and are willing to hide under the mattresses uh, the way they did in 2018. And so both, both camps are winning out, again, a sign that ETFs are held, not often just traded.
4: I'll jump in on this because the love for fixed income was part of one of my observations. To put a number on it, we've seen about $70 billion go into fixed income so far in the first half, and that's the most for any half ever. So that gives you an idea. And now the amount of assets under management across fixed income products is now at an all-time high. So around $750 billion. And as Todd said, it's unbelievable. You see love for short-term products. You see love for long-term products, even in the belly of the curve. And it just goes to show that at this point in time, yes, a lot of people do believe that interest rates will be lower for longer, but it's still not set in stone.
3: And I'll jump in here, too, with a couple comments. Fixed income relative to itself, these ETFs are definitely, it's a banner year. They're on record to have their most flows ever. But when you use it relative to U.S. equities, Mm -hmm. I find sometimes that number is a touch distorted because of the January outflows that were a result of tax loss harvesting. If you take those away, it's not quite as dramatic. But that said, it is dramatic, and it's worth pointing out. What's also interesting is active fixed income mutual funds have also been hauling in the cash. I think they could be right around the $70 billion mark based on uh, the numbers we have so far extrapolating into June. So that would be a banner year all around for fixed income. And the idea that it's across the curve is also interesting. Normally, like 2018, it was all ultra short and short. Right. Uh, some years it's all long-term. Some years it's high yield. It, it this The diversity is interesting. GOVT is a ticker that, to me, represents this year. GOVT is the iShares... Uh, treasury ETF, which invests in all uh, treasuries across the curve, right, from A to Z. And that is taking in $4.6 billion. It's, uh I think it's just squeezed into the top 10 of inflows, and it's not that big. So that one's punching way above its weight. And to me, that's representative of this year. If I had to pick a sort of poster child for this year in flows, it would probably be GOVT.
2: And what do we think the second half of the year is going to look like for fixed income?
5: Well, we're getting to the predictions already. I mean, on it's just, this. So like, There you go. be on your toes on it. So uh, we think the we think money is going to continue to pour in. So even if the Fed does not, so we don't believe that the Fed is going to be. This is really cutting well, interest this rate.
2: conversation ultimately is about the Fed.
5: Well, it's it's uh, about the Fed, and it's also about investors using ETFs uh, and fixed income ETFs from more of a strategic perspective. So you do see a tactical shift based on what's going to happen with the Fed and, and the dot plots and, and things to that effect. But you are seeing some of these low-cost core products continue to gather assets regardless of what's going on uh, with the yield curve. And so we think we're seeing products like AGG and BND uh, from iShares and Vanguard, respectively, among other products that are just increasingly being used as a replacement uh, in the institutional marketplace and being, in, being a replacement uh, for some mutual funds or for individual bonds as well. I mean, and all of these products are are products that have been around for a little bit in the fixed income space. Is
2: there any is there any new products that have been kind of a shocker or, it, or a surprise for you? Well, I mean, in the fixed income space, yeah.
5: Well, we're we're seeing more and more of these ultra short active products that gained some traction in 2018. That likely we going to be just parking money, uh, and I think we expected that, and others did as well. And we've seen investors continue to move into those products. So Wisdom Tree has a floating rate. Uh, treasury-oriented product that, that skyrocketed in 2018, USFR, uh, has, hey, has on, really... Part. yeah. Did somebody say floating rate? Yeah, but you know what? It's continued to pour in money, and we've seen JPST from JP Morgan, other products. These are relatively new products. These are not three years old, and yet they're gathering significant assets.
4: And the fact of the matter is, yes, a lot of this has to do with where interest rates are going, but it also has to do with where we are in the economic cycle and where we are in the market cycle. Because, as Todd mentioned, people also use these strategically. So people now, if they truly believe that we are towards the end of the economic cycle, which... Pretty much as consensus at this point in time, you could say.
2: Although there's people who don't believe in the economic cycle either. I think but, it'll um, go on yeah. forever.
4: This, is, this time is different. This time is different. But still, people are going to these products to use as a hedge. So, yes, positioning regarding interest rates, but also just a st- strategic hedge.
3: And if the Fed is accommodative, as they have been, it's going to be good for all, all of this. But if they do get hawkish suddenly and people start freaking out, it's going to, as, as everybody said, you will see flows to different products but it probably will take down the overall number in my opinion so the 70 billion we saw to me could double to 140 if the fed's you know relaxed accommodative uh, if the fed turns hawkish i could see that struggling maybe ending up ending up the year at 100 as pe- as the outflows from TLT and those guys maybe get offset by the inflows to the short duration stuff all right who's got another big observation
4: I can come in. It kind of ties in with the whole fixed income bent because even if you look at equity flows so far this year, where we have seen the focus is unbelievably defensive. If you look on a sector level and then also if you look at factors as well. So to give you an idea, the top sectors flow wise so far this year are real estate, communications, utilities and consumer staples. Now, communications, yes, it holds some of those fang names, but also those dividend yielding telecom names as well. Every other sector has seen outflows. So it's pretty amazing that there is just a unison want for defense. And then on the smart beta side, we have just seen massive flows into low volatility funds. It's like the first half is the first half year of the low volatility funds because so far they've taken in more than $11 billion. It's the most for any half going back to 2017, I believe. So it just shows you that on the equity side, where we are seeing flows Is the defensive side
3: and to chime in on that two things on that just to first of all low volatility ETFs are the most sellable thing ever created. (laughs) What person who's like sixty doesn't want like the market with like a smoother ride? It's like you could sell the. I like like how your voice
2: got smooth. Yeah,
3: (laughs) it's like Diet Coke, right? It's like zero (laughs) calorie. It's such a sellable thing. So there's an evergreen nature to low vol. Right, sweeping the world. The other thing is on the sectors, though, I will say that the real estate to me is also maybe Fed-related as well. It's all a dividend play. Yeah. So you get this because at the beginning of the year when the Fed got dovish around January 4th-ish, right Right. at the beginning, we saw this thirst for yield trade come back, whether that be those sectors, the uh, fixed income ETFs, uh, junk bond ETFs, saw inflows. uh, And that was kind of dying. We actually wrote a note in late 2018 about how the thirst for yield trade was possibly over. Um, And then, boom, it came right back.
4: Even if you look in smart beta, so low vol is your number one, but below that is multi-factor. So diversification at its best. And then it's dividend yields. So these dividend ETFs. And that's just another case to be made that when you have really low interest rates, you have a 10-year, 2% or below, people want yield. And if you can go to the equity market, still take a little bit of risk, but be guaranteed a payout, that's clearly attractive at this point in time. What, right.
5: I, what I think is also interesting is you cited uh, this is strong since 2017. What that means also is 2016 was a great year for right. the first half for low volatility ETFs. But what was happening in in the first half of 2016 is the broader market and the financial press outside of Bloomberg was freaking out that there was too much money going into low volatility ETFs. They were actually driving the overall market, which is, of course, absurd given how small these ETF products are. Three fast forward 3 years, we're seeing the money going into it and people are now applauding ETF investors for taking more of a lower risk approach even though we're up 17% in the broader market. That's a sign of some maturity that's out there and I think it's also just a sign that investors are willing to wanting to have their cake and eat it too. So you still want to be part of the marketplace and be up but be down less. And, and these products held up quite well in May You know when the market became much more volatile.
4: I will point out, though, that one of the most popular low volatility funds, USMV, Eric and I were talking about this the other day, has actually outperformed the S&P this year. So when you think of low vol, you think of safety, you're tracking the market, but maybe you get a little bit less of a return. This year, you're actually getting more than the S&P 500. So it's pretty amazing.
5: Yeah. I mean, that's got a heavy weighting, still a relatively high weighting in technology right. uh, for a defensive portfolio because it, it reduces the risk within each of those sectors. So you do have exposure to some of the growthier sectors just in a more defensive way. So companies like MasterCard instead of Apple, for example, mm-hmm. within technology. And But just to go back to the craze of 2016 where Loval took
3: in like $40 billion or something, Um, Don't quote me on that. It's it was a lot, uh, you know, relative to its size. That year they were outperforming by eight, nine percent. This year it's two percent. So it's interesting that they've taken in so much money despite not not crushing it per se. So to me, this is more about the psychology of, hey, we're late in the market. Um, how long can the Fed keep the party going? It's like the party mm-hmm. feels like it's four in the morning now, right? And I know the Fed just brought some new beer, but it's <laughs> like, dude, I gotta get some sleep. This thing is gonna, this thing is gonna bust up soon. So I think there's a general defensiveness despite uh, the returns. You want to talk about your rave days? <laughs> is that what you're trying to say? The late '90s? Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. So this defensive posturing, though, how much are investors missing out on what they, what we've seen so far this year?
4: So it's pretty amazing because you look at the S&P 500 and the S&P is up 17% or so. We just recently hit new highs. However, much of that has been driven, at least in the back half of the half, so I guess the second quarter of the year, you would say, has been driven by gains in defensive sectors. So by positioning in these areas, there are Actually, don't seem to be missing out on all that much because if you look at since May, May was when everything related to trade started to fall apart a bit. We saw a little bit of a pullback. Since then, where the outperformance really has been is in utilities, is in real estate, is actually in consumer staples. So by positioning in these places that you would think maybe you're not going to get that much of a return on the upside, but you get protection on the downside, we are actually seeing participation in the upside as well.
5: Yeah. And with utilities and real estate in particular, I'll leave consumer staples to the side for this. They are defensive. They offer the yield, but these are also U.S.-centric plays. So we've had the trade fears that have been going on pretty much all of the first half of the year. The easiest way to hide from that is just to stay as local as possible and you're local utility or your Simon property, you're not getting the same international exposure that you would within technology, which was has been a strong performer, but obviously has been much more volatile in the last couple of months.
2: So which sectors have been the biggest losers from an outflow perspective?
5: Well,
4: from an outflow perspective, the worst are financials, energy, and materials. So That is just a clear cyclical play. I mean, you want to look at the areas that are tied in with the economy. These are them. And it shows you that ETF investors are a little bit worried at the moment. They don't want to be anywhere near these three because we've seen some pretty sizable outflows in those areas as well.
3: Okay, Eric,
2: do you have an observation
3: from the first half? I do. uh, And I'll go a different track. We just did flows. I think we covered a lot. Uh, Let's go to launches. We'd like to see what's launching. It gives us a flavor of what's going on in the ETF space. There was more launches than I thought. 129 this year. That puts us on track for, what, 260-ish? That would about tie the record for annual launches. I'm surprised by this, given how rough the fee war has gotten and how some we saw some launches that came out at zero fee and negative fee. I thought this would put a little more fear into the bones of people who had uh, ETFs lined up, but they're coming out like crazy still, probably because ETFs continue to take in most of the flows. Uh, Interesting on the top 10 list. like So the new launches, which are the rookies of the year? Which ones are taking in the most cash? Barely any big names. I mean, yes, the top two are ESG. That's also a shocker. Um, I've been bearish on ESG, but these two have overcome that. It's the iShares and the Deutsche Bank, mostly because all that money came from one investor, a uh, European pension fund. So institutions could be the way for ESG forward. That's an interesting observation from those. Also, two big thematic ETFs in the top 10. The Global X Cloud Computing. There was already one on the market, but the Global X uh, came in and it's already got 400 million. That is a wow. shocker to me. It charges 68 basis points and it shows you can still innovate and win because this one is much more targeted than Sky, the first trust one. And it's doing a lot better this year. I think it's up 6% versus Sky Flat because it goes after the smaller, more pure play companies. That's interesting. And then finally on the list, you've got YOLO. Which is the marijuana ETF. I was shocked it took people so long to do a Me Too pot ETF. I was this is probably the most no-brainer launch you could ever think of because there's definitely enough interest. MJ is now a billion dollars-ish. I would be not I I wouldn't be surprised if we see a couple more pot ETFs come out. A la the robotics craze of a year ago. Um, but as they keep coming out, they're gonna the law of diminishing returns will kick in. Uh, but the ticker should be really something. I, I'm anticipating some crazy tickers in that space. But anyway. On the flip side, there's been 91 closures. That's also shockingly high. If you extrapolate that, you get to 180, and 180 would crush the record. I think the old record's about 125. So this tells me that, yes, there's a lot of innovation and a lot of excitement, but there's a lot of Darwinism going on, and you have an industry, I think, that's maturing. That's my takeaway on that.
5: Well, you've got two camps in that you, you kind of glossed over the, the cheap products that, that have come out this year and for understandable reasons, because they haven't been gathering as much assets, the ultra cheap or, or free products. Maybe we'll come back to that one later on. But thematic has really been the way of investing uh, for launching new products, because you can be differentiated in how you interpret the themes. Uh, we now have, I think, now our third and our fourth related gaming ETF. We'll probably see ten at some point because that's such a broad hey, open area he on this. Triggered, <laughs> I triggered myself on this. I just don't get it, but, I, yeah, but what I do, we, do get. Okay. But, but but you're a fan of the 85th quality large cap smart beta fund. I am because what? it's the in-house expertise see, that's, that, that's there. That I puts me to sleep.
4: I w- I will uh, blow your mind right now if you don't get the gaming thing. I have a younger brother, actually, who is a professional gamer. Well, now he's retired, but it is unbelievable. This is a this is a thing.
5: I'm sure it's a thing. I'm sure it's a thing. But we, but we now again, we have now more gaming related ETFs out there than home building related (laughs) ETFs. What I just think is interesting is that we're we're seeing a lot of these innovations that are out there. iShares has launched products in the Thematic and trend oriented space. We've seen State Street launch it. We're seeing some of the bigger boys come in, and that's going to, again, spur additional innovation and adoption because you got to find where the puck is going to uh, to skate to it. And, and these smaller firms are really doing a good job of launching these products. In my view, the real reason thematics are, are becoming big
3: business is the modern portfolio is real low cost core, right? You know, you've got this building block of like maybe five bips for the whole thing. International developed, emerging markets, US equity, bonds. Then to have fun on the outside, to try for a little alpha, you could do a factor, factor ETF. You could do uh, a single country or thematics. And I think thematics, again, for advisors, are easy to explain. You can buy into the story and then you put them on top. That's why we like the hardcore thematic ones because we're assuming you're using it as a little hot sauce on top of the portfolio. So we say you might as well go all the way and try to really capture. So that's why that thematic capture score that we create, I think, is crucial. And hopefully, you know, helps people navigating because now a lot of these categories have three or four ETFs to pick from robotics, cybersecurity, cloud computing, you name it.
5: But what the other part of that from an asset management perspective is you can charge 45, 50, 60, 80 basis points for these products and still be able to gather assets as opposed to even though we've seen competition, the floor is considerably higher for these products overall. Whereas iShares has three and four and five basis point products, it's a lot harder to become profitable uh, if you're a public company that way. That's true. And that gets us to the shiny object
3: stuff we've talked about. If you're hardcore and concentrated, you have the shiny object potential because you're in smaller companies. And when some of these products hit, they hit big. I mean, they don't outperform by two or three percentage points. They outperform by 20 percentage point. So nobody cares that it charges 60. right? And that's the beauty of a thematic ETF from an issuer standpoint and from the investor. That said, the problem with thematic ETFs, if they are concentrated, is you really have to buy into the story because you will see volatility. Like, If you're into robotics, are you really into robotics or are you into performance chasing? How many people can stomach when those things uh, have a rough run because, say, high beta stocks are selling off currently? You have to buy in. Solar energy is happening with that this year. Right.
4: Look at TAN this year, one of the best performing ETFs out there.
5: Yeah. But if you're going to swing for the fences- you better make contact exactly. because you you're going to strike out quite a lot. <laughs> so there is a catch-22 in going
3: for the gold with thematic ETFs. You need a stomach for it, but it probably makes more sense to go and, pure, and capture the, the industry because a lot of those stocks, typically when they go pure, they're not in other big indexes, so you're getting unique exposure.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
5: Todd, rookie of the year. Yeah, I mean, well, Eric talked about from a flows perspective, the ESG products, and they got the money from institutional investors. But USSG, which is the what well, was the cheapest of those two products, I believe that SUSL cut the fee as well. But 10 basis points for ESG exposure that's broadly diversified across the sectors. ESG has been off on the sidelines in part because they charge a premium fee. If you're going to compete on price for an ESG product, you're likely to get further adoption. And I think we're going to see that throughout the year. And let me bring up
3: one other new launch that this is the ETF to watch, BBUS. Todd and I have a bet on this one and how fast it will grow. It's only 30 million now, but JPMorgan launched this thing. And if, yeah, I mean, it could grow quickly. And here's, this is fascinating. BBUS is literally a straight knockoff of the S&P 500. You ever seen Coming to America, McDonald's versus McDowell's? (laughs) This is McDowell's of the S&P. It's so close that they literally have the same like 10.12% performance uh, through the first quarter. The stocks are almost the same. I mean, there's almost no overlap. Why are they doing that? Why would they do that? The golden arcs? The golden arcs, the golden arches, right? Anyway, if you look, J.P. Morgan is the largest owner of SPY. They own something like, I want to say $20 billion Mm -hmm. worth of SPY. That's a lot of their advisor business. It's very likely some of that is going to be converted over to BBUS. And this is this BYOA, bring your own assets thing we talk about, is more and more issuers that hold SPY and IVV, these companies that have large advisor networks, if they launch their own McDowell's versions of these, you could see a big uh, ceiling on the BlackRock Vanguard juggernaut. I'm not sure it will happen widespread, but if BBUS starts to take off and everybody accepts it, as not like having a huge conflict of interest, which I don't think it does because it's cheaper, does the same thing. It's not like you're putting your clients into something more expensive or different. Um, but BBUS is one to watch. This could be a
5: $10 billion ETF in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, re- JP Morgan is launching or expanding a, a retail oriented program for investments later on the summer. I forgot the exact date. And that's the time period. You know, you're going to have an asset allocation strategy that has BBUS as as the core for the U.S. You're going to have a Europe product BBEU, which is out there from them. They've got Canada, they've got Japan. You could build an asset allocation strategy using J.P. Morgan's own products, and it's highly likely that J.P. Morgan is the one who's going to make that available for their clients.
3: And if I didn't mention, BBUS charges two basis points. That's just under. Uh, VU and IVV.
4: Cheapest S&P 500. Cheapest S&P 500.
3: Well, well, cheapest cheapest S&P like.
4: Right. S&P like. It's the big mick. The big
2: mick. Mick. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, any other observations?
4: So I have one more observation that I just find really strange, or not strange, but very unexpected. And two reporters over on the news side, Rachel Evans and Vildana Hagerich, found that if you look at the 10 top performing ETFs this year, eight of the 10 of them have less than $100 million in assets. So it goes to show you, you don't have to be big to be great. Now, yes, a lot of these funds are leveraged, um, three times leveraged products, you can imagine. But one of them is RUSL. So that's a Direction daily Russia Bull three times shares fund. When a lot of people think about investing outside of the U.S., you hear about India a lot. Of course, you hear about China, emerging markets, Europe. You don't hear about Russia too often, but there is this fundamentally good, strong economic story for Russia. And The fund is up 80 percent or more this year. So pretty amazing. And I think it's something people wouldn't really expect.
3: That reminds me of last episode where we had Sylvia Jablonski on maker of the 3X ETF. So just a warning, these are Power tools, daily usage. Uh, Sarah just did a great job promoting the 80% return, but let's don't,
4: let's hold, don't they, yeah. They're not supposed to hold on to it for the whole let's 80% check back in six months. It could be zero by <laughs> Absolutely. then. Absolutely. Yeah.
5: Todd, how's your Russia fix? There's a good reason that this product has little assets. Three times right. leveraged a country that the United States is not. On good terms with? I'm, Todd's I'm not into the not exotic really, stuff.
4: No. He doesn't no.
3: like it. He get, Serve him a Davis large cap, and he's happy. Yeah, he's I was like, not
4: promoting like, it as if this I is something like everyone should go to. <laughs> it's just Th- interesting. Take the borscht back.
2: <laughs> okay, so if it's halftime, we got to talk about the second half. What are you guys watching?
5: Yeah, I mean, the exciting thing to us is that in the first half, we didn't touch on it, but in the first half of the year, we've got uh, regulatory approval for non-transparent ETFs. I think you guys may have covered that beforehand on the show. Uh, These are ETFs that will be disclosed as infrequently uh, from a holdings perspective as mutual funds. And there's a number of big boy asset managers that are lining up uh, to work with Presidian uh, that have have a license agreement. I think there's a couple of dozen firms out there that are doing this, some that have not offered ETFs to begin with. And I think that's going to cause not not only new products to launch, as as Eric touched on, of of breaking the record, but we're going to see some of these firms dip their toe in or more aggressively move into the ETF market. A firm like American Century that has already ETFs today is likely to expand their lineup. We have a firm like American Funds that doesn't have anything to do that. And so I know the easy argument is nobody wants these products, but people want mutual funds. Easy? It, no, it's the
3: correct argument. I mean, look, I feel I don't want to be bearish on these because I'm, I'm willing to be open-minded and surprised. But here's the question I'd ask you. Look, some of these, a lot of these firms you just mentioned already have transparent active ETFs and nobody's buying them. And obviously, their mutual funds are seeing outflows, a lot of them. So it's like the, the metaphor I use is you've just made this incredibly awesome new state-of-the-art dog food bowl, but the dog doesn't want the food in it. The dog has to want the food in the
5: bowl. Yeah, but I think who's going to want it, and the part of why the issue is, is that the firms are not committing to it. So many of these firms that have a, a small ETF presence within a larger asset management company are not putting the resources, the marketing, the distribution teams uh, to support those efforts. If they're more directly connected with the mutual funds, uh, and the people who are advocating and educating about those mutual funds, I really think you're going to see greater adoption that's out there. And there's a whole host of advisors that would be very happy to buy an American funds ETF because they love American funds. There just isn't an ETF available for for them.
3: That's the advisor I'm not sure I think is a, is a I don't think I, that demand is interesting to me. The distribution, the relationships, the hey, this is better than the old thing. I get that but grassroots organic demand from that sort of classic ETF investor. I'm not sure. The other question is could they convert their mutual fund to this or will they move money over? And I just don't think some of these firms have the stomach to move something from a higher revenue source to a lower revenue source. I you know, I could be wrong. I just I see these struggling over time. Sarah Predictions?
4: I will go the complete opposite direction. And something that's amazed me all year long has been the IPO ETF, because it feels like everyone hears names like Uber. You hear names like Lyft, which didn't have the best IPOs. And people think that it's been a rocky start, but it really hasn't. I mean, IPOs are off to an unbelievable year. The IPO ETF up more than 30%. And I think that this is really going to be a very hot area going forward. So we're supposed to see more launches. And if the environment that we have seen so far this year continues, where people are actually willing to really reach for risk and get on on these funds, we could see more.
5: Well, from a performance standpoint, they're likely to be driven more because some of these companies will have to, have to wait a little bit of time before they get added to the S&P 500 right. index or other indexes that have much more money behind it. And so... You'll. I th- it's still surprising that there's one kind of a second one from First Trust. That's a, an IPO ETF, given the range of products that are out, th- the new stocks that are out there, and the and demand for IPOs. So I I think we're going to see. I think we should see more of them. It, and there's again, some is surprising. Big
2: splashy IPOs that still could happen in the second
3: half of the year. We work among them. FPX to me, uh, these they're underrated. Um, they hold these stocks. In Can't the get tw- them anywhere else. Yeah, they hold them for the two or three. I call catch and release. You know, they grab the toddler. The release is
5: really long. It's four years for for that one. And
3: you only need to be right a couple times because, like, you only need a couple Facebooks to co- totally make up for the right. duds. But yeah, that that ETF. Look at the performance of F P X over the past fifteen years. Unbelievable. My prediction is that U S. equity ETFs are going to regain control and knock out this fixed income narrative and and lead the year in flows by the end of the year. And I'll tell you why. That's bold.
5: It is bold. That, I know that. Wait, that's something that seventy percent of the overall ETF pie is going yeah, to continue to do <laughs> that. That's
3: but it's really against, bold. Yeah, it's, it's against like your last twenty tweets. It's against the whole narrative we've been hearing now: is it fixed income, fixed income, U.S. equity sucks. I just don't see it happening. Here is what I, I I just think Trump's desire to use the stock market as a campaign item, a big one is going to make him make the trade deal happen. It's going to make him sort of coerce the Fed to keep rates low. And that's going to get the trading crowd involved because if you look at flows, we've divided them from allocators buying and hold ETFs to the ones that traders use. The ones that traders use have seen a negative outflows of 15 billion this year. The allocators are doing their thing, 45. They're going to continue. But if the trading crowd comes back in and buys like the IWMs and the spies, that's what's missing from this year and a little bit from last year. If that crowd comes in hard... I think that's when you see U.S. equity ETF sort of regain that sort of, um, you know, lead dog aspect that they're normally used to. Uh, but we'll see. It could go the other direction. That's the
4: election's a, in over a year. We still got plenty of time for him to make Yeah, a deal. but he's
3: going to be seeing the debates and people talking trash. And he's going to, I'm telling you, I, th- this is just a complete theory by me. And that, it also indicates that, that the Fed isn't independent, which is kind of, you know,
5: blasphemy. But I'm just saying my thoughts. Blasphemy. Todd, I, I, I think there's no question that U.S. equity ETFs are going to dominate in the second half of the year. I think what we saw thus far in June is that has been uh, investors have gravitated towards it. But when you're 70% of the overall marketplace, it's like saying you think Golden State is going to return to the finals, <laughs> which they have done in the last three years. Yes, and I was rooting for them, and that's great. But the underdog that's out there, it's like perhaps – picking the Philadelphia 76ers a year ago and rooting for them as, as some in the or room Michigan might have
3: Michigan to lose the World Series? No. Hey,
5: so we're taping this for everybody's purposes. We're taping this on the eve of what is the last game of the College World Series. And Michigan, I have to admit that I'm a Sarah and I are both proud Michigan alums. It's okay. I didn't even know Michigan had a baseball team what? Went a few months ago. I wasn't paying attention to it. But I'll happily jump on that bandwagon. Of course Michigan so bl- has a baseball team. Yes, but they don't play <laughs> in June. It
3: ends. The season's over. These guys are spoiled rotten. They've got baseball now on top of basketball and football. I got Rutgers. But we Rutgers is like awful in everything, including like field hockey.
4: That's me complaining. Yeah, you guys, (laughs) you guys
3: are spoiled rotten.
4: Yeah.
3: Go blue.
2: Go blue. Todd, Sarah, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, bloomberg.com. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can get Todd at Todd C-F-R-A and Sarah at Sarah Ponzik. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of
0: Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Qatar, and premier sponsor q